Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with Melissa Widner. She is the CEO of Lighter Capital, co-founder of Heads Over Heels, a former venture capitalist, as well as a successful entrepreneur who's chalked up a couple of high-value exits in her career. My interest in speaking with Melissa was initially due to her experience on both sides of the table, as an entrepreneur and as a venture capitalist. As we get into our conversation, you'll hear about her experience and guidance for early stage entrepreneurs. We talked about her experience with work and life as she's a mother of four. We also discussed the realities of being a woman in what's traditionally been a male-dominated arena, which I'm very happy we did. Melissa has tons to share, and you'll learn a lot from this discussion. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company, and I encourage you to reach out to them at any time. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Now enjoy the show. Melissa, welcome to the show. Hi, Corey. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to our conversation as you have quite the career in early stage financing and leading companies, and there's a lot there. So I'm looking forward to this, but I think the best place to start is a background on yourself. Yeah. So I still consider myself first and foremost an entrepreneur. I ran a couple companies and One was a low-tech manufacturing company that had a very successful exit. That was a turnaround. And then I started a software company in Silicon Valley that was in the enterprise software space. And that ended up being acquired by a company called Concur, which is a large enterprise software company. And then I started in venture capital and I worked for a venture capital fund in the U.S. for several years um, out of Seattle. And then I moved to Australia and with an Australian husband and got quite involved in the Australian ecosystem, which was very nascent in 2009 when I moved to Australia, but it's grown quite a bit. My prior to Lighter Capital, I was a managing partner at NAB Ventures, which is the venture capital arm of National Australia Bank. And we focused primarily on fintech companies. And I was investing primarily in companies in the US. And one of the companies that we invested in was Lighter Capital. Lighter Capital was a Seattle-based company. I say was, it still is, although we're fully remote. And I went on their board in 2018. In 2020, I became their CEO. We were ready to put in a new CEO, and I just absolutely love the company, had a vision for it, and loved what they did, saw such a need for, you know, based on being an entrepreneur and an angel investor. And also, I've done, I don't know, maybe now close to 40 angel investments 
and a venture capitalist just seeing a need for this type of funding that not every company, in fact, most companies don't fit into that venture capital box. And another thing that I spend a lot of time on, I was am a co-founder and I'm the current chair of an organization called Heads Over Heels that supports female entrepreneurs running high growth companies by providing them with, it's a not-for-profit, by providing them with high-level connections that'll help them grow their business. Yeah, I want to get into that. I've actually got that noted down to speak about Heads Over Heels. Let's talk about lighter capital. Just so you know, I'm going to meander all over the place. and just That's fine. That's, that's how my brain works too. So. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> Let's start with Lighter Capital because that organization helps finance early stage companies, but in effectively an alternative form of financing compared to your traditional yeah. VC or Angel Root. And so give us some color there. Yeah. So Lighter started in 2010 and it was actually founded in a venture capital fund out of Seattle Voyager Capital based on an unpublished research report by a Harvard Business School professor who said there should be other ways for these companies to get funded, that what gets written about and celebrated often is venture-backed companies and big venture rounds and companies becoming unicorns. But the reality is venture capitalists only fund 1% of companies that they look at in general. And so there's a lot of great technology companies that need growth capital that won't get venture, don't necessarily fit a venture model. And their options are bootstrapping friends and family. You know, banks typically aren't going to lend money to these companies because they're not profitable. They're investing in growth. They don't have hard assets. You know, the founders don't want to give personal guarantees or lean against their house. So it started as a way to provide alternative funding to these, you know, these high growth companies or these growth companies. And we focus primarily on B2B SaaS, but we'll really fund any company that has a predictable recurring revenue that fits our underwriting criteria. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, and we, and Lighter doesn't take any equity or control. So there's no financial covenants, no equity or control. So it's very friendly funding. Hmm. I think it's a really good point. You know, there's the sex appeal of venture capital and of getting backed by a VC. I mean, there's even a Netflix series about it right now. And and so, or there has been. And with that, you look and you go, it's just, it gets all the limelight, but there's other options out there. And this is leading me to a question. When you go get VC funding or you go get any other form of funding, debt funding, whatever it is, there's a cost to capital there. And so looking at lighter capital and what you're doing there, how do you fit into that organization? Or how do you, excuse me, how do you fit into that the ecosystem of funding yeah. and, and where do yeah. you land? So a lot of our companies go on to get venture capital and we also fund companies, especially in this market today where valuations are down because we don't set a valuation. We provide financing. Let me back up a little bit just to talk about how our product works. So we provide, it's basically debt and the payback is a percentage of revenue until the debt is paid back. So for example, We'll provide a dollar and most of our companies want longer term capital. So it's typically over three years, but we'll provide a dollar depending on where a company lands on the risk, how we assess the risk. They're probably paying us back over three years, a dollar 30 or a dollar 35. If they want capital for a shorter time, a year, it might be like a dollar eight, right? So we give them a dollar, they pay us back a dollar eight over a year, but they typically want capital for a longer period of time so they can deploy it. But so they owe us a fixed amount, say that dollar thirty, and they pay us a percentage of their cash collected revenue until the dollar thirty is paid off. 
So the nice thing about that is if companies have lumpy revenues, they don't have a big debt burden or a big debt payment in a month where they don't have a cash collection. Or if their revenues fall off a cliff, which we saw that happen during COVID, we had companies who were really hurt, who've actually bounced back now. But, you know, we had a ticketing company that was just a rocket ship prior to COVID. It's a sort of ticket master alternative. They provide the platform, the ticketing platform for venues, and then their revenue is a cut of the ticket price. So you can imagine what happened in COVID. Their revenues declined 90%, but the amount they paid us declined 90% too. So they were able to, you know, hunker down, wait it out, and now they're back on that rocket ship. So it's a really friendly debt funding and we don't take any equity or control. So founders are able to keep equity in their company while they're growing it and getting it to either a a higher valuation where they can go out and do some venture funding if they want to go down that path or just keep control until they exit it or just keep running the company. Yeah. So so sorry, you asked about the ecosystem. I'll talk about that later, but go ahead. One of our guests, his name was Tom Klassen and I mean, he really focuses on, you know, non-tech businesses, but he calls himself, or I think I coined him the anti-equity advisor because he's all about <laughs> Oh, debt. I like that. Yeah. yeah. And it's, you know, I think that we look at debt as bad and we want to go straight to equity. And, and I think that there's, you know, far more hooks with equity and far more costs that are kind of intangible or implicit in, in that arrangement than if you just had debt. And so it's a big thing to consider. And it's really interesting, lighter capital's approach to financing these B2Bs. You don't see that a lot. So that's very cool. Yeah. And look, venture capital equity is debt with a whole bunch of hooks because there's typically almost always liquidation preferences, which means that in an exit scenario, the venture capitalist is getting paid back first. So that's a form of debt. And then there's also the equity on top of it, the ownership, and you know, then the control provisions that are in place. And look, I was a venture capitalist for the better part of two decades. Most VCs are really good people. They're they're usually high IQ people and IQ people. They they have to be to be in that position, but it's just, it's not a one size fits all. And there are lots of companies out there who need growth financing that don't necessarily fit the venture model. What did you learn when you went from the role of, you know, leadership roles and seeing companies through exits to a venture capitalist and now back to being in the driver's seat, the leadership role. What perspective? So, (laughs) well, running a company and being a startup entrepreneur, I always say it's the hardest job in the world, but there's probably some harder ones out there, but (laughs) air traffic controller, that's probably a pretty stressful job, Okay, but it's, you know, venture capital, it's really a cushy job you know, compared to being a startup entrepreneur. And not that there's, you know, not the, it's not difficult, but you know, your roller coasters, if you think of a startup entrepreneur, you're really up and down, way up and way down. You know, it's a little smoother in venture capital because you've got a portfolio of companies. There's usually some going well, some not going well. You're not working on the day-to-day operational piece. And I would say, I love being back in that role I especially love being back in that role on the operational side after working with so many, you know, great CEOs and seeing different management styles from the board perspective and from a VC's perspective and being able to, you know, hopefully implement some of, you know, the good things that I learned and not some of the bad, you know, bad behaviors that I saw as a venture capitalist. But it's, I mean, what's nice is being able to have to really get in and, you know, exercise that creative bone, which is harder as a VC. 
Yeah, yeah. Now, expand on that if you can on leadership styles. And over your time as a VC, you would have seen a lot of deals and a lot of CEOs and management teams. What do you take from that? And what are you applying, like just consciously applying now where you look and you say, that was it? Yeah. Well, when I think back up to when I was a CEO and I ran two companies that had very successful exits and I didn't know anything. I mean, I had my first gig when I was just 23 and I, you know, was tried to learn by asking as many people, getting as much advice as I could. But I realized I was the best leader and the best manager when I got out of people's way, when I hired people, really good people, and let them just do what they wanted and help them where they needed it. And where I wasn't as good in my earlier career, I'd say, as if I, when I, you know, tried to get involved and it was more micromanaging. So, but at that time, I thought that the people I was just leaving alone, I was a terrible manager for, but it's interesting now and looking back. And then when I became a VC, seeing some of, you know, some of, I've worked with some amazing CEOs and the ones I've seen, especially in this early stage startup space that do the best jobs are the ones that hire really good people, set the strategy and vision with their people. So it's clear, everybody knows where the company's going and then leaving them alone to do what they'll do best and then helping them where they need it, being there, helping them where they need it, encouraging a culture where failure is okay. Because if failure is not okay, you know, people won't take risks and the company won't grow and stretch. So that's what I try to do. And I find probably when I fall short is when I, you know, either don't have the right person in the position or when you're, you know, trying to get too involved. How do you keep yourself separated from it, but still involved enough to ensure that these individuals are going the right direction? Well, regular communication. So I am a big believer in one-on-ones. We're all remote, so you have to be, and regular one-on-ones. And then also just measurement tools. We're implementing a product called Align right now, which is a KPI tool. Very simple. It's actually a lighter capital portfolio company, but it's an easy way just to make sure we're on track. We're tracking to our goals, you know, and it's also nimble if we need, you know, goals can change, especially in a company our size, they can change as we go along. But you know, here's where we're going. What do you need to get there? What impediments are in your way and how can I help? Yeah. So just constantly connecting and then a real tie into measurement. Yeah. And then let them be. And really this is, you know, hiring people who are smarter than you, you know, that's the key. (laughs) Hmm. Excellent. With your experience in venture capital, I'm sure there was opportunities you passed on where you looked and said, damn it, (laughs) should have been there. What were those and what did you take away from that? Yeah, lots. Well, I think like the bigger stories are ones that, yeah, maybe I didn't pass on, but didn't think was a, were great ideas at the time. Or So when I went at Seven Software, we hired our VP of marketing, who is somebody I'd known for a long time. And in fact, she and I had a business together in undergrad. And then we were both at Stanford. She was doing her P. I was getting an MBA and she was doing her PhD in molecular biology or something like that. But anyway, we hired her as our VP of marketing. She had an offer to be a VP of marketing in a, an, another small startup. 
And I talked her out of going there because I didn't think that would go anywhere. And that was eBay. So that's not necessarily a, a company that I passed on, but you know, <laughs> I couldn't see how they could differentiate. And to, to this day, it's hard for me to look at companies that are focused on consumer products and figure out, you know, if there's not a technology piece, how they're going to differentiate and understand right. why eBay won when you know, there were a lot of other companies doing the same thing in that space. That's but anyway, it's not what I passed on as an investor, but yeah, I see where you're going there. Yeah. Well, I hope you're still friends with her. <laughs> she's one of my closest friends. In fact, she's kind of a little bit famous in certain circles now. She's Grammar Girl. So, which is, um, I don't know if you've heard it, Grammar oh. Girl. Anyway, she's, yeah, she's written seven books. She's been on Oprah. She's got, at one point, her podcast, she was early in the podcast. Her podcast was like the third most popular. But, you know, and if she had gone to eBay, she may, maybe never would have gone down that path. So Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. Look at that, hey? Her name's Mignon Fogarty. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll put that in the show notes. It's funny how life goes that way. And, you know, it also brings up the in consumer products or, you know, really any products. I always am very curious about how some companies get that spark and they make it. And let's take a couple of examples. We had, I think Atlassian had their chat tool. You had some other kind of co-working chat tools and then Slack comes along puts a nice kind of brand feel to it and boom. Oh, the Slack, right. Right. Yeah. It becomes huge success. And, you know, you see that in a few other ways where tons of different attempts at doing it, but somebody else just hits the right time. Zoom just finally, like, why did Zoom win out over everybody else? I'm always curious about that. Yeah. When Google Meets is free. Yeah. So I don't know if that's always been something that's interesting to me. How about things that you've learned in your career, mistakes you've made that have been the most meaningful? I would say if I look back, I mean, I don't have a lot of regrets, which is good because I think the mistakes are things you learn from the most. But I would say probably early in venture, you know, there were a lot of opportunities in sort of the 2001, 2002 timeframe when things were imploding to try different models and maybe to be more creative. Like that would have been an opportunity to be more creative instead of just sort of business as usual. But it's not a very specific mistake I can point to. But I mean, of course, there's lots of tons and tons of mistakes, but I wouldn't translate them into regrets because any failure is a great learning experience. And we all know you learn more from failures than successes. Well, yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at. And so I was wondering if there's something there that you look back and you go, that was a pivotal turning point, right? Like that was, yeah, well, yeah, with your friend, I, the grammar girl, I mean, she had a pivotal moment in her career there. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. a fork in the road. Yeah, I would, I think one mistake, it's not a huge one, but I ran this industrial supply company. That was my first sort of job in, in my 20s. A friend of mine's father hired me to run this turnaround company. And it's because I had a business in college and he saw me as really entrepreneurial. And that was really good. He got a 15x return. And I would say I probably learned every, you're always learning, but I was there for five years I probably had learned, you know, most of what I needed to learn there in three years. So if I think of, oh, if I had two more years in my 20s, what else could I have done? So maybe just, you know, when you're ready to move on, move on a little faster. Interesting. Yeah. Don't kind of be stagnant or comfortable. Yeah. 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 Would mm. you still have been able to get that exit had you left earlier? Ah, I mean, it could have been slightly, but that was even though it was a great 
exit, the dollars were relatively small compared to tech exits. So I worked at Goldman after my first year of business school and I saw what tech exits, you know, I saw the difference in tech exits versus, you know, manufacturing companies and started a tech company. But that's funny. Okay, let's let's get away from the business side of it. So maybe some regrets, like probably some regrets I have would be more around the family side. So Hmm. I have four boys and in my early career, okay, here's a regret I have running the industrial supply company. I didn't have kids then, but I took one vacation in five years. That's a regret. I probably would have done a lot better at that company if I'd taken more downtime. Yes. But I just, so, and that's something we really encourage at Lighter Capital. That's where the creativity happens in the downtime, and that's where you get your energy. And, you know, you're going to have a lot more output. If you actually have that, even though you've, you know, stepped away from it for some time. So that's a regret I had. I took one nine day vacation in five years. So I have that, to build that was, that. I've been down a similar path and probably the last four or five years. I mean, I've been working remote and we've been building our business, but it was for the first time two and a half months ago, I took a vacation for a week. And after that <laughs> vacation, when I took time to just hang out in the pool have a beer, write some notes and reflect on what was been happening, especially in the last year. I looked at the quality of the decisions I was making and I'm just frankly a little embarrassed, but I was completely burnt out, just completely burnt out. And so I can't express it enough how much I learned from actually taking that time off and being able to look back and say, you know, what could I have done better? And now it's just, it's a given. I need to book that in. I need to keep that because that is, we can't just keep going and going and going 12 hours a day. We're not robots. No, it's interesting is, I mean, a young entrepreneur, you know, you pride yourself on that. You pride yourself on, you know, that nonstop work. We're going to give it all weekends, nights, you know, what is that? Lunches for wimps. That's, I mean, <laughs> that's from, I don't know what movie is that from? Some, But anyway, we actually pay people at Lighter Capital to take a vacation. And this is something that I put in pretty early. Lighter Capital has a policy like a startup's do where it's unlimited vacation. Okay. But the reality is people weren't taking it. And there was a culture. The culture was, you know, you're supposed to kind of be on. Mm. Even when you're off, you're supposed to be on. Yeah. And I noticed that, I don't know, maybe six or nine months in. I mean, it was still COVID, so kind of hard to tell, but people weren't taking vacations. So what we did is we put in place a bonus for people if they take a vacation. Uh, We want people to take, you know, four weeks a year, but if they take at least a week without checking email, they get $500. So, and then we celebrate it and we, and if they check email, they don't get it. So it's really about, you know, look, if it's an emergency, we can text you or Slack you, but, you know, turn off. And we know that's really good for them. And it's really good for the company too. If you have people, like you've said, that have had a chance to, you know, get their creative juices flowing and rest, they're going to be happier. Yes. Yeah. You know, it, it so that, that is a regret. Of- that's a regret. Yeah, I hear you on that. Well, and a good lesson learned. And now look what you're doing with your team. It also reminds me of an interview we did with a gentleman named Andrew Barnes in uh, somewhat your neighbor in Australia, the the pond there in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Something Guardian, a trust company that he runs, among others. And so he's implemented the four day work week with his organization. And so I was curious about that. And reached out to him and said, this sounds interesting. You want to be on the podcast? We had a great conversation, talked all over the map. 
And now we operate on a four-day work week. And it's been a really, really nice transition. We haven't skipped a beat. And I think that we feel more free and refreshed as a, you know, a small organization. So I think there's a lot of alternatives out there for that kind of stuff. And I think we should keep them in mind. I want to go back to, you mentioned you have four boys. And you know I've known you all of 25 minutes now, but I can get the sense that you're a very hard driving type A personality who's looking to, you know, you're probably always on. How have you balanced family life with your professional life? Yeah. So in the early days, I was selling Seven Software when I was having my first baby. I mean, literally like signing documents in the hospital because the company acquiring us was going public and they, we needed to get something done by, you know, we needed to get the transaction done before the end of the quarter. So, and I didn't take maternity leave at all with my first three. So that's a regret because I mean, the first one, there was no choice. I was selling a company or the CEO. You can't really put someone else in that position. But when I look back on the second and the third child, I could have, I could have taken three months off or, you know, in Australia, people take a year off. Everything would have been just fine. I had just made partner at Seapoint Ventures right before I had my second child and we're having our annual meeting, which is where you present to all your LPs. I think when my second child was, I don't know, call it, I mean, eight or nine days old. And I was just determined to present. And I just, like, that's just stupid. <laughs> like, why did I do that? You know? So I just, and my fourth child, I was in Australia. I wasn't working in a traditional job. I was doing board roles and starting heads over heels, but I mean, that was just the best experience. So I would encourage people, men and women to take that downtime because that's time that you'll never get back. Our COO and our CFO at Lighter Capital, he's just about to have his first baby in a month. And you can imagine he's a really worse small company. He's pivotal. He wears a lot of hats. There's so much that he does that only he does. So, you know, I'm really pushing him to take paternity leave and just shut off. And we're finding out everything he does so he can do that. We have a really generous paternity leave and maternity leave policy at Lighter. And we encourage people to take that. So... Interesting. How about, you know, we just had our first child 16 months ago, 14, something like that. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, it really has been wonderful. I mean, it is the best of times and worst of times. Like, my God, I'm not a good operator on lack of sleep, but it's <laughs> how it no. is. But with that, I saw how demanding children are on females, you know, on my wife and on women, especially in those early months, the first year. And it wasn't until I saw that that I didn't really start to come to grips with the difficulties and the challenges that women face compared to men when it comes to the professional role. Like I was still able to pick up the horn and go out there and, and hustle and there was nothing stopping me on that front. But I mean, sure, she could have, but she also chose to be a mother. What's your take on this? Is it a trade-off? Is it something that should be fair and balanced? Is it, yeah, how should we frame this up? Well, when I ran my first two companies, I didn't have kids yet. And then when I look at my venture, when I had young kids, which is when it really takes most of your energy and time when they're young, is in my experience, not that there's a whole, not a whole set of different things that you're dealing with when they're older, but when they're young, it's just, I mean, you literally have to, you know, when they're under two and a half, you have to watch them all the time to make sure they don't die. That is a stress that's yeah. Yeah. And once they can start moving, so that's, you know, a big stress sitting somewhere, you know, 
mothers and fathers and, you know, there's a lack of sleep and everything. So it's look in terms of how we can make that better for women. It's for men to get more involved, for it to be acceptable, socially acceptable for men to take paternity leave, for men to, you know, step away from their career for a year or two and stay home with the kids. I mean, women, women kind of have it good in some ways that from a career standpoint, where it is quite acceptable, if you have this break in your resume. You know, if you were sort of, you had a good career before and you've got a break in your resume, at least in Australia, you know, you can, where there's a tight labor market, there's tight labor market in the U.S. as well. You know, you can pick up and have very interesting opportunities open to you even with that break. And not that the break doesn't cost anything, it would cost something. But I actually think it's probably harder for men to tell that story, to say, look, I spent five years staying home with the kids. So we have to get to a society where, you know, that's acceptable for both. And we are getting there. I think big strides are, are being made because in, until that's okay, and until men are punished for that, then they're going to be more reticent to, you know, take that downtime. And then more of the burden will fall on the women and you'll have, you know, that it'll be a continuous cycle. You know, something just came to mind as you're saying this, when planning kind of paternity leave and maternity leave, I think that there's probably something to be said for men actually splitting that paternity up. And this is from my personal experience. I mean, we've got our own organization or company, so I didn't bother. I just you know, kept going. But if I was in a role where there was that option available, I would really suggest splitting it up if you could. Like the first maybe three months being there because it's a really tough time. And then, but I found for myself with our firstborn, like the first six months, there's not a lot I can do. The first three months, I was like cleaning the house and keeping everybody fed. But then as things kind of got into routine, there was three months where there's nothing I can do to serve that baby other than making sure there's roof over our head. And so a bit of a thought and a suggestion, if possible, is like to actually split that time up and then take, you know, some later. But but I think back to your point, what I'm hearing from you, though, is that how do I put this tactfully I think that there can be a lot of arguments that people put forward, male and female, that support a narrative that there isn't enough out there for women who are having kids and in their professional careers. But what I'm hearing from you is, no, it's different and we need a paradigm shift. It's like there's the support out there, certainly in, in Canada and in Australia. But for women, what I'm hearing is reframe how you're looking at this, especially in a tight labor market. It doesn't you know, you got the upper hand. Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, it was really hard, but it was infinitely easier for me than for a lot of other women because I got as much help. I believed in getting a lot of help and I was selling my first company when I had my first child. So, or not, I was selling the second company when I had my first child selling seven software. So I had resources, I had access to resources and I can afford resources. So, and it was still really difficult. So, you know, doing it without extra help would be really difficult. I do want to actually emphasize that to your point there. Not having the resources makes it very, very, you know, I can imagine very, very difficult. It's difficult right now, but yes. So it's a complex subject, but I appreciate your insights on it. And so... Yeah, this is a podcast on financing and we're talking about kids. Yeah, <laughs> it's all I related. told you we're going to meander. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, it does tie in because really what it comes down to, in my view, is that all the money in the world is not going to make a business tick. 
if you don't have people there and you don't have an organization that is, is set to run it. And yeah. I've seen enough we companies say, that can raise boatloads of capital but couldn't align their teams worth a damn. No. So. Yeah. Yeah. That was it. I think it was Andy Grove culture eats strategy for breakfast, you know, okay, it yeah. doesn't matter what your strategy is if you don't have a, a culture and a yeah. team that can implement it. Yeah. I want to talk about financing and actually early stage financing and getting into some of like, even just like educational things to consider for early stage organizations. But before that, let's talk about heads over heels and why you started that. Yeah, so Heads Over Heels was founded in 2010. It was founded by myself and three other women, Alex Burrell, Janet Menzies, and Sarah Lucas. And at that time, I'd been a venture capitalist for about 10 years. And I thought back on my entrepreneurial journey and Seven Software had success. And I could look at a lot of the success that we had had to do with access to or connections you know, access to the right customer at the right time or the right source of funding at the right time or, you know, office space. And as a venture capitalist, I hardly saw any women even pitch me. So it wasn't that just that we weren't funding women, we weren't even getting women to pitch us. And this was after 10 years. So we're all kind of sick of this. This was in 2010. There wasn't a lot. This topic wasn't widely discussed at all back then. This was kind of, you know, pre-lean in. Cheryl Sandberg did a lot, you know, to bring that conversation to the forefront. But what I learned from my personal experience is there's a lot of resources out there for entrepreneurs in terms of educational resources, but it's really access to the connections at the right time. So what if we could create an organization that could facilitate those connections? And so what Heads Over Heels does is we have a large group of what we call connectors, and those are senior business people, men and women, who are willing to open their networks to female entrepreneurs who are running high growth companies. So to become a heads over heels portfolio company, there's a selection process. And if you're selected, you know, so not, not as rigorous as getting funding, but, you know, kind of along that path. And if you're selected, then you have the right to present in front of our connectors, heads over heels connectors, who are you know very senior business people. And you present, here's what my company does. And here's what I'm looking for. You know, here are the things I need. And it might be introductions to banks, for example. So in our, you know, our connectors are, there'll be a lot of senior people in banks or people who know senior people in banks, like very senior, like CEOs and board members. So what they can do is they can facilitate an introduction. And if an introduction comes from a senior person, you know, the entrepreneur will at least get the meeting, you know, they might not get the sale, but they'll at least get the meeting and getting a warm introduction can take years to get, right? Or it might be something that never materializes. So, and the whole thesis behind heads over heels or the theory behind heads over heels is that in general, there's lots of exceptions, aren't as well connected in the business world as their male counterparts. And, you know, having access to those strategic connections, particularly around financing and partnerships can be pivotal to making or breaking a company. So we've been at it for 12 years now and have lots of success stories. And it's now got its own life. It's got its own staff. It's funded by NAB, National Australia Bank, Macquarie, Ernst or EY, Steadfast, Gilbert and Tobin. So it's got great sponsors behind it. Excellent. Yes. That's, I like the format of that. It makes sense. And those relationships and the ability to get those warm intros through this, I like that format. It's super I, efficient. So it yeah. takes the connector a few minutes. 
yeah. to just make that introduction. And it's an email introduction. Usually the entrepreneur writes, helps write the body of the email. And that, you know, few minutes could have a huge impact and often does on the company. And so it's a way for these connectors, these senior business people to have an impact without spending a lot of time. You know, it's not a mentorship program. It's not an educational program. There's not a massive ask of their time. No, no. And people love hanging out with entrepreneurs and hearing entrepreneur stories. So, you know, that's why I do what I do. I love being around the most fascinating people on the planet and helping them entrepreneurs. That's awesome. Why do you think it is that in general, and I think, yeah, we have to speak in generalities, but women have smaller networks than men. Why is that? And, and you know, what do you think about that? Well, women are great networkers, but I think it, is, it goes back to even, you know, who your friends are. More men are out there in the workplace than women. And, you know, who, you know, you're on the golf course with somebody that's, it's easier to do, it's easier to do right, deals yeah. and to do business when there's that trust already. And there's a relationship that already exists. So, you know, in general, I can look at, you know, my close friends from university and, you know, count on one hand, those that are out in the work world today. And there's a lot that I'm great friends with still, but that are out, you know, a lot of them stopped their careers early on in order to become mothers and do that really important work. But, you know, if you're a guy, it's probably everybody that you went to university with who's out there in the work world. And all your good friends from university are probably out there. You can, you know, go back even further, you know, high school or so it's it's just, it's those relationships, those deep trusted relationships that you form in your tribes, you know, female tribes, there's probably a much lower percentage of those people who are out in the work world. So you're just going to have a smaller network. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think that's, you know, really valid points. And I remember hearing a, a podcast, I the names of who were speaking elude me, but this lady made the point that mentorship within women is on a scale compared to men is far lower than that of a male to male mentorship is almost just like it just, it just gravitates and happens where for women, there's a smaller pool of opportunity there. And perhaps it just doesn't work in the same way. So but it, it is changing, like the numbers are finally changing. Yes. I would say for the first decade of this century, you know, there wasn't much change, but there's been so much, there's been such a spotlight on it in the second decade that we're seeing real progress. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, that's, I mean, that's positive. Yeah. That's great to hear. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Well, um, what's interesting on the lighter capital side on the same subject. So the way lighter capital makes its financing decisions is completely data driven. So our application takes 10 minutes. If you're a slow typer, um, it's a very fast process compared to going out and raising money from venture firms or angels where you're having, you know, dozens, maybe hundreds of conversations and takes months, you know, potentially years, but our underwriting, our credit underwriting decision is, is based on data numbers. So we're not looking at team at all. And as a venture capitalist, that was the primary thing I was looking at. You know, of course it's market size, competitive landscape, but really you're looking at the team and the team is a completely subjective measurement. And there's all kinds of biases and unconscious biases that go into that. So what's interesting is the lighter, I, I think I mentioned earlier, we've done over a thousand rounds of financing and we have funded a much greater percentage of companies with women founders, co-founders, and women on the senior management team, not because we set out to do that, but because we're just looking at data. So when you're just looking at data and not, and that team doesn't come into it, that subjective measurement, what happens is, you know, 
more people who don't receive funding in the traditional venture capital model get funded this way. Awesome. Right on. Go lighter capital. <laughs> Let's talk about financing. And I want to do this, you know, as I mentioned earlier, kind of like an educational way. When you see early stage entrepreneurs move in to raise capital, where would you start with them if you were to give advice? So figure out what you need to get to the next stage and raise a little bit more than that. <laughs> because entrepreneurs are optimistic people. You'd have to be to jump into something that has such a low probability of success. So, you know, you probably are not going to perform to your plan. So raise a little bit more than you need to get to the next step. And this is advice that's really easy to give and very difficult to implement. And it's choose your funders and your investors wisely. And the reason that's very easy advice to give and hard to implement is because the reality is most entrepreneurs that go out and seek funding don't from a venture firm don't receive it. So, and if they're lucky enough to get one, they take, they've got to take the one that, you know, offer them money where in, you know, what we hear about and what we celebrate, what gets written about all the time is the rounds that were oversubscribed, that they have lots of venture funds approaching them, but that is a tiny, tiny percentage of companies that are out there seeking funding. So it's easy to say, choose your investors wisely. And, you know, sometimes if you just need capital to get to the next stage and there's only one fund or one individual willing to give it to you, you know, there's not necessarily a big choice, but it is when, if you do have a choice, you know, choose wisely, make sure that they are aligned with your vision and they're there to support the entrepreneur's vision and just to help the entrepreneur realize their vision. You'll be a sounding board and all of that, but they're there to help you realize the vision. You know, I liken being an entrepreneur to being a parent and a parent is, you know, it's great to get lots of advice. It's great to get lots of help, but ultimately a parent is going to be the best one usually to raise that child. So, you know, how do you help? How do you support the parent in that role? How do you support the entrepreneur in the role? And that's the best role for a funder. And I think that's the best way for a funder, whether it's, you know, our type of funding, we're looking just to get our money back. We're not getting equity upside. You know, we're hoping our loan gets paid off or a venture capitalist who's looking to get equity upside. You know, the way you can increase the probability of success there the most is by making that entrepreneur successful and helping the entrepreneur realize their vision. So... The way to do that is to talk to, if you're considering taking money from a venture capitalist, make sure to talk to, or an angel investor, talk to other entrepreneurs that they've backed and see what they're like to work with and really see what they're like to work with in the hard times. I started my venture career in 2000 and, and quickly saw a decline with the dot-com crash and, you know, see what people are like to work with in a, in a down market. Yeah. And there's a lot of pressure. When times are tough. Yeah. I think a couple of past guests in the venture space have expressed that you need to do your due diligence on the funders that are coming to the table and ask questions of them. And, you know, it's very important. I mean, obviously that becomes harder when you only have one option at the table and it's close up shop or take the check. But should you be in good fortune to find yourself with a couple of term sheets in front of you or more, you really need to do that due diligence. Yeah, absolutely. Or even having an option to bootstrap before you take the wrong investor on board or 
to, we have a lot of stories in our portfolio at Lighter Capital of companies that went on to raise venture funding, that they were able to use our money to get them to a point where they really did have a choice. One company that's out of Philadelphia called DBT Labs, they raised 240000 from Lighter Capital and then went on to raise $5 million from Andreessen Horowitz and then $30 million from Sequoia and then they became a unicorn. But they were able to, you know, get that non-dilutive funding or, you know, not giving away equity or control to get them to a point where they, you know, they could choose some of the best known VCs in the world. What I take from that is entrepreneurs who are able to bootstrap, and I know of a company who raised a million bucks in grant money over a series of five years to get them to a point where they're able to raise real money. Yeah. Uh, grant money is the best if there's not a lot of strings tied to it because it's completely oh God, non-dilutive. Yeah. You don't have to pay it back. Yeah. yeah. But it shows, I think it presents, a, if you can get traction from that capital, and when you go and sit down to have money raising relationships, I think it also shows a sophistication of understanding that I'm not giving up my company for anything. I've got it to this point by taking on the lowest cost of capital possible. Now I need real money for real growth. You know, it demonstrates an understanding of a very important aspect of the business being your financing and your cap structure. Yeah, I mean, we have one of our entrepreneurs who's Australian. She's also a heads over heels portfolio company. She bootstrapped her company. It's a company called Expense Manager, and they provide expense management and payable solutions for mid-sized companies. And bootstrapped it, great, you know, good customer base, never had any churn. And she's now taken three rounds of financing from Lighter, but every time it's for growth. It's, you know, it wasn't for company survival. It's okay. You know, the first time it was, I'm going to hire my first external salesperson. She'd been doing all the sales and her company's growing phenomenally now. And now she's taking on capital to build a new product that her existing customers want. But, you know, there's an example of, you know, being able to keep building your company in a non-dilutive way when she might get to a point, you know, we're capped at what we can fund, how much money we can give to companies. We can give them up to $4 million and we can give them up to half of their ARR. So their annual recurring revenue. So, you know, if you're a company that's ready, you may be doing a couple million in revenue a year and you're ready to take on five or 10 million in funding, you know, you're going to have to go down that venture route because there's not a debt option out there for companies with that profile. So, but, you know, if you can put yourself to your earlier point in the best position when you're ready to go have those conversations, you'll be able to select your investors rather than them selecting you. When it comes to putting yourself in that best position, you know, you hear a lot of advice of keep in touch with your potential, your investors, do your research on the VCs, the funders, and tell them what you're going to do, go and do it and come back and say, Hey, look what I did. And you know, this is what we're going to do now. And then come back to them and say, you know, I'm doing this because I'm going to be asking you for a check in about six months or something like that, right? You know, paraphrasing the process. But aside from something like that, in your experience with entrepreneurs, what has been the most impressive approach to relationship building that led to successful funding outcomes? Yeah, so there's an entrepreneur who called, his name is Will Davies, and he was the founder of a company in Australia called Carnex Store which is similar to Turo in the U.S., which is like an Airbnb for your car. You, know, you can rent your car. And I was on a panel a couple of times. I think I was moderating a panel. This is probably, I don't know, 2012, 13 or 14, but moderating a panel. 
and he was one of the panelists. It was pretty early in his journey. And I saw him present. I was, I was quite impressed. It was really early. And then I was on another panel with him, maybe six months later, saw the traction he made and, and just the way he was thinking about the business and thinking about the numbers behind the business, uh, really thinking about, you know, how he was, even from an early days, he was really thinking about data. And, you know, so I approached him and said, you know, look, keep me informed when you're ready to do a financing round. And what he did, which was great, and I don't know if he got it from someone else, I'll have to ask him, it was similar to what you said earlier. So he created a report and it was called the Future Investors Report. So I started getting this report from him. I didn't ask him for it really. And just started getting this report, the Future Investors Report, that was, you know, how they're doing, their numbers, how they're growing, as if, you know, really better reporting than I was receiving from a lot of companies. I did have an angel I love it, yeah. And it was so good. And then when it was time for him to raise money, it's like, yeah, aren't I already an investor? So, and that his company was acquired by Uber a year ago or a year and a half ago. So it was a great exit. Anyway, I love that. I've said that to entrepreneurs, you know, keep, especially, you know, in a business like that, everybody's a potential customer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the more people that you have kind of as part of the family, the better. Yeah. What a great way. And, you know, to his credit, I mean, just somewhat thinking out of the box of and so explicit of you're going to be an investor. I'm just sending you your future investors report. Like just, yeah, yeah. you know, even cheeky a little <laughs> bit. So good on them. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, no, it was great. I think we're just, you know, we're hitting an hour here and I want to wrap up, but something I'm always curious about is if you're a reader, if there's any books that are in your head that you've really enjoyed, or if not, if there's just books in the past where you're like, this one is definitely worth a read. Yeah. Yeah. There's books that I recommend. And I think, I mean, one book that a lot of entrepreneurs have read is The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And that's just, that's just a good motivational read. There's not, it's, it's more one person's experience than a lot of data behind it, but it is, it's a good book, I think, for all entrepreneurs to read. And I really like the No Rules Rules book, which was written by both the CEO and the chief people officer of Netflix. And it was about culture and building a culture. And there's things that you might completely agree with or disagree with, but it really gets you thinking about that. The Advantage is a good short one that's just a good sort of management tool book. And there's a lot of tools in there. Good to Great is always good, Built to Last. So there's a lot of good ones out there. And I think you, a lot of them really, when you boil it down, have very similar advice. But look, for me, it's just helpful to be reminded of, you know, those types of things on a regular basis or good management practices, good company building practices on a regular basis. So I've always got one or two going. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Something that comes to mind for me is Venture Deals by Brad Feld. Yeah. He's just a compelling writer. Oh yeah. Great writer. And, you know, prolific. And yeah, he was actually, he was on the podcast and I asked him about, you know, lessons learned from deals past. And he went on to explain him almost passing on Fitbit and what happened there. And I thought it was a really interesting take. And so, yeah, anyway, great book. And and thank you for the recommendations there. I'm really excited about Lighter Capital and I'm glad that I got to learn more and I'm glad I was able to get your perspectives here. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Thanks, Corey. It's great to chat with you. And I'm really excited about Lighter Capital too. Yeah. Right on. Okay. Well, we'll get this all published up. Thank you so much, Melissa. Okay. Thanks. Have a great rest of your day. You too. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.